everyone. This is Jim Hughes from AFIO Now. We are a program of um, recorded presentations by uh, retired senior uh, intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. Today, I'm inviting back our very first guest presenter. Um, you'll recall Joe Augustine. He's a retired uh, senior clandestine service officer, served primarily in CIA's Natural uh, Resources Division and Near East Division. Before he retired, he was Deputy Chief of our East Asia Division. Most, most uh, important for today's program, he was the director of our Defector Resettlement Program. Joe, welcome back to Afiona. Thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you for inviting me back. Um, and particularly to talk about this subject, which I really find to be fascinating. And I think uh, it's a program that is not well-known even within CIA. And, and so I hope your viewers today get an opportunity to hear a little bit uh, about the inside view of, of the CIA's defector resettlement program. So just by way of a little history here, um, this program, uh, the defector resettlement program, it has been in existence really uh, since 1949, the 1949 CIA Act, which is also called Public Law 110. And Public Law 110, uh, again, going back to 1949, allows the U.S. intelligence community and specifically the CIA to bring into this country for resettlement purposes up to 100 people a year. These are people who have contributed substantially and provided exceptional service overseas on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, and helping protect our and, and, and enhancing our own security. These people are considered uh, defectors. Now, you know, when, when we all go through training in the clandestine service, uh, we, we have a mantra. Uh, we all hear, and you've all heard, and your, and your viewers, I'm sure, have all heard the idea of spot, assess, develop, and recruit. That's great. Uh, but there are a number of cases where we have recruited assets overseas, who we add, a, we add yet a fifth word to that mantra, and that's resettle. Now, we would rather have our recruited assets stay and work in place. We don't look for defectors, okay? But there are times when defectors, through no fault of their own, uh, sometimes through their own fault, become subject uh, to scrutiny by their host service, uh, they make a mistake. Occasionally, CIA makes a mistake. And then we have to think about what to do with these, uh, with these assets, these valuable assets. And so uh, I think CIA defector resettlement program is reflective of the fact that we take care of our assets. Okay, there are many of these people over years. And, and I can tell you that, you know, that we, we bring in uh, we have a limit of 100. We very rarely reach that limit, but we bring in a number of people each year to protect them because they've been, or they, they, they've, they've gotten in trouble overseas, and it's, it's for the best of, for them and their family to bring them in and to become part of the uh, defector resettlement program. Now, we do this for Russians, of course, which most 
most of whom, uh, you know, mo who, who mostly get the attention, but we also do this for Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, any defector, any, any recruited asset uh, who uh, is in trouble and we have to bring them in and resettle them. And we resettle these people actually uh, for uh, the rest of their lives. And so I can tell you, and I'm allowed to tell you, that currently uh, CIA has several hundred of these resettlees currently living in the United States, could be your neighbors, could be your next door neighbor, uh, and we take care of them uh, for the rest of their lives. So this is a program, again, that goes back uh, to 1949. And I, you know, it was, it was the foresight of the founders of the CIA uh, who decided back then that it was incredibly important to protect uh, and, and, and to provide for the security of those people and, and uh, who provided this kind of information and substantial contribution to U.S. security. Now, we don't take in everyone who defects, and we don't have a resettlement. This resettlement program does not exist for everyone, but it exists for those who have provided that kind of substantial contribution. Joe, is this like the uh, U.S. Marshals uh, Witness Protection Program? How do the two programs differ? You know, oftentimes the CIA resettlement program is compared to the U.S. Marshals Service. And in, 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 some, in some ways, they're, they are similar. Uh, in other ways, they're dramatically different. For example, um, most of the people in the U.S. Marshals Service uh, Witness Protection Program are U.S. citizens. They're accustomed to living in the United States. Uh, they're usually uh, involved in, you know, crime issues or they've been witnesses in crime cases, uh, criminal cases, uh, drug cases. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, um, you, you know, they need they need protection by the U.S. Marshal Service. So in some ways, it's similar where it, where it differs dramatically is that. If you're part of the U.S. Marshal Service Witness Protection Program, you abide by you abide by very specific rules, and there are many cases where people in that program are basically kicked out of the program because they don't abide by the very strict rules. When CIA uh, takes in a resettlement case, and we are we are providing for the care and feeding of our defectors. We're doing this for life. Okay. Once you're in the program, you're never out of the program. And we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort uh, because this is what we do. We, we look after our people and we look after our people for the lifetime of, uh, uh, and, and by the way, this includes family members as well. So that's the primary difference between the two programs. Joe, can you discuss a typical case and perhaps tell us um, what a defector and his or her family go through when they're being resettled to the United States? And what have you learned uh, about a typical um, defector's frame of mind and the reasons for them defecting in the first place? You know, Jim, uh, as, as you know, <clears throat> uh, in our CIA careers, we have many, many, <laughs> it seems like uh, we, have, we have many positions as we, uh, as we spend our career in the agency. I spent 28 years in CIA and had many, uh, many different assignments. And I can tell you, you know, this assignment 
And I, you know, I was chief of station on a couple of occasions, and uh, I had senior positions, and as you said, in area divisions. Uh, but I found this position to be extremely interesting because I made it a point uh, to meet almost, I, I wouldn't say every defector under my charge at the time, but I spent countless hours with some of the agency's crown jewels uh, in terms of intelligence assets. Uh, I had the great opportunity to meet with Yuri Nosenko, for example. I've met personally with uh, Rashid uh, Kuklinski, uh, and these are names I can mention. I, I met routinely for lunch with Alexander Zaporovsky. Uh, these are people who are public, publicly known now, but I spent a great deal of time with these people and found it incredibly interesting to delve into what makes a defector, what makes what makes a person do what they do. And what I've concluded is that really, uh, you know, people who spy against their country are really not what we would call normal. Uh, you know, nope, you know I, I would like to think that, uh, you know, you and me and others in the agency and, and the rest of the population uh, would never think about doing that. So those people who do are really not in the sense, really not in the area that we would call normal. Now, what I found with most defectors is that most of them are A-plus personalities, okay? Most of them are egoists, uh, egotists, I should say. Uh, many uh, are risk takers. And if you think about it, they wouldn't do what they had done for us unless they fall into that into that category. Now, you know, it's, it's a matter of uh, what is it, what does it take? And, and, and let me tell you why it's difficult to resettle some of these people who we have, again, who we have to bring out because they're in trouble. Now we've done this and the exfiltrations, as we call it, have happened in a wide variety of ways. Sometimes defectors uh, get out on their own and we take them in. And, and, and help them through the resettlement process. Other times we've taken out defectors in trunks of cars, like you see in the movies, uh, or we take them out under the, uh, uh, the darkness of night. And what happens in a typical case? Again, these are people who now are in jeopardy. Uh, their, their whole service is onto them. They need to get out and they need a safe haven. And this is this is and they look to us to do this. And we don't give up on our defectors and we don't give up on our at recruited assets. If there is someone who needs this kind of help, we're going to help. So why does it get difficult? It gets difficult because oftentimes the recruited asset hasn't discussed his or her activity with their spouse or with their family. And at some particular point in time, we say, to that family and to that recruited asset, it's time for you to leave. You're in, you're in trouble, your security is jeopardized, and we need to bring you into the United States. So we do that. So now we have, before we even initiate the program, we generally have a conflict between the recruited asset and his family. Now, you know, and again, part of Public Law 110 allows us to take out up to 100 people a year, which includes family members. We rarely meet that threshold, but, you know, we bring the entire family out. 
So now we're telling, let's say the wife and the two kids or three kids or whatever it is, now they're coming to the United States. Again, often, uh, often uh, in, in, in a very rushed fashion. And they arrive in the United States and we say, let's take a Russian, for example. Now you speak Russian, but now we're going to teach you English. Okay. And now uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to assimilate you into U.S. society. Oftentimes they're unfamiliar with, uh, uh, with the language. We're going to put the kids in a new school. And by the way, most of the recruited assets, when I mentioned about their personalities uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, we only recruit uh, or we generally recruit overseas those people who are uh, uh, important figures in, in, in science, in, in the science world, perhaps they're government officials, uh, perhaps they're military officials, perhaps they're intelligence officials, and these are generally our recruitment targets. So we're taking them out of the country, we're bringing, in, bringing them into the United States, and we say to the recruited asset, by the way, the job you held back in Russia or China or North Korea, which was really important, is really not the kind of job you're going to have in the United States. There's a sense of euphoria when they first get to the United States, at least for the recruited uh, asset, uh, because it's new to them, it's exciting. And now the process is, let's get them inculcated, let's get them assimilated into US society. So we say, we're gonna teach you English, we're gonna put the kids in school, uh, we're gonna try to find you the kind of job that will be satisfying, but probably not at the same level uh, you had before. Yeah. And then we say, by the way, we're going to give you a new name, right? So we're going to give you a new name, and this you're no you're no longer whoever you're now John Smith or, and here's the kicker, and we say, and you cannot have any social media contact with anyone back in your host country. That means no Facebook, no Instagram, no contact with your relatives, your mothers, your grandparents, your friends, because by doing that, you risk your own security. Because the host countries generally don't give up on trying to refine those people who are resettled into the United States. So you can see it's a traumatic, it's a traumatic experience for these people. And I can tell you that you know, we do our best to make it easy. But after the euphoria is over and after this happens and all of these new elements are now part of your existence, uh, it becomes a very difficult process for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these now defector resettled families. Okay. On our staff, we had in the defector program, we had lawyers, we had psychologists, we had medical people to help these people understand and assimilate. And then after we do all of that, and after we talk to them to, to, you know, to, to pick their brains more about what they knew, and that's over, then we say, and now we're probably gonna resettle you in a place maybe you haven't heard of before. Maybe Florida, maybe Michigan, we ask them. We wanna do what's best for them. We want them to, uh, to feel comfortable 
uh, but they're going to wind up generally in a place that they don't know about. Uh, and we say to them, live happily ever after. It doesn't always work that way. And it's our job and our responsibility and the CIA's responsibility from an ethical and moral standpoint to do our best to make that process easy. Because if we don't make it easy, and if we don't do the right thing, um, you know, we won't get the kind of recruited assets interested in doing uh, what we ask them, uh, what we ask them to do. Joe, without uh, revealing any classified material, can you discuss any specific cases that you uh, or the officers with you uh, handled? Any problems that you um, encountered with uh, the defector community? Were there any unhappy defectors? And have any of them publicly criticized CIA as a result? Yes, you know, when I, when I took the job uh, uh, as the director of the resettlement program, uh, I remember George, George Tennant, who was the director at the time, telling me, I don't want to hear from you. Well, you know, uh, because no news is good news uh, from the defector program. Uh, and I remember, uh, you know, uh, speaking to many congressional leaders, I was called on up to the Hill on a number of occasions uh, to talk about resettlement issues. And, 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 and so there are issues that come up. Uh, as I said, the sense of euphoria that most of the defectors experience when they first get here tends to wane uh, over the years. And, and it's up to us that is CIA and the defective program to make sure that not only are these people happy, but that they're safe. And we, so there's a great deal of attention paid uh, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, veiled threats that we, we see come across our screen or the fact that some of these people may be uh, on uh, Vladimir Putin's target list, for example. So we have to be very careful of that. But to your question, uh, you know, there are people like uh, Razia, uh, Colonel Kuklinski, who was probably one of the most important spies uh, during the Cold War. He, he a, Polish, uh, a, a Polish colonel, uh, who worked with us for nine years uh, until about 1981, from about 1972 uh, to 1981 or so. He provided over 35,000 pages of documents on Soviet Warsaw Pact activity. And by the way, this is all public knowledge. It's Kuklinski has been written about uh, extensively. Uh, you, you know, our case officers in Warsaw met with Kuklinski over this period approximately 63 uh, uh, times clandestinely. He was a rock star. Uh, in the sense of, of, of uh, uh, a recruited asset. Well, right before the imposition of martial law in, in Poland in 1981, uh, he became uh, under suspicion. Uh, his host service, uh, the Polish government, began to think, who is this guy? And at that point, we decided, with his obvious concurrence, uh, to bring him into the United States and resettle him here. Uh, again, I had the opportunity to meet with him numerous times, over lunches and over dinners and conversations. He was a remarkable asset uh, in the sense, uh, and a remarkable man, a brave man, 
who risked everything uh, to help the United States. Now, was his resettlement successful? You know, he he lived comfortably. Uh, by the way, we give we give our people uh, uh, who we take into this program. Uh, we give them an annuity. We give them a uh, you, you know we help them with with housing and and that kind of thing. Uh, and Kuklinski lived a relatively happy life, but he's a personality that was always on the go. He was a personality uh, that that wanted more, that wanted to do things. He no longer was the colonel uh, who was providing incredibly important intel to the United States. So he lived comfortably in a southern state uh, with his wife and two kids. And you know, were there problems with Kuklinski? You know, it, it is because it was a come down from what he had been doing uh, for years and years uh, uh, in, in a very important position uh, in Poland. Now, tragically, and, and, and this is still subject to debate and people, historians look at it. Uh, tragically, both of his kids who were teenagers uh, died mysteriously. Uh, uh, one uh, was on a... Uh, went out with a friend uh, sailing uh, uh, off the coast of Florida uh, on a very calm day with very calm seas and was lost at sea and died mysteriously. Six months later, within six months, his second son was hit and killed in a hit and run accident where the, the hit and run driver was never found and the car in which Kuklinski's son died uh, was burned to a crisp. Now, the question is, what happened? You know, and, and so that this happened. Kuklinski died, by the way, in 2004. And, and these tragic losses of his son happened uh, prior to his death. So that was traumatic uh, and, and uh, still you know, shrouded in mystery in terms of what really happened. Uh, what really happened to uh, um, uh, Kuklinski? I've had the opportunity, like I said, to meet with uh, Yuri Nisenko, a uh, very famous and well-known uh, spy uh, uh, it, who um, <laughs> there was a lot of questions about whether or not he was an actual defector. But, you know, he lived a good life. Uh, we, we provided for him very well. Uh, and, and his his. His existence in the United States, I would say, was uh, was 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 a good one and a and a a, a very uh, rewarding one for him. Then there's Alexander Zaporowski. Alexander Zaporowski uh, was a KGB colonel um, who did a lot of work in Africa and in Latin America, and actually wound up, uh, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, working with our CIA station overseas. He was a recruited asset, uh, and he was responsible, or at least he led our very professional and, and very detailed uh, counterintelligence officers uh, to discover Aldrich Ames. He gave us a tip. He didn't give us the name of Aldrich Ames because he didn't know it, but he gave us a tip. Uh, in terms that, that helped lead in the investi lead the investigation toward the eventual fingering of Aldrich Ames. Now he came to the United States 
And he came also with his wife and, and two children and led a very successful life for a while. But again, the defectors that I'm familiar with and the ones that I've met have a personality that we would consider an A-type personality. Well, somewhere after being in the United States for a number of years, and I met with him almost weekly for lunch, uh, he was lured back into back into what was uh, back into Russia. Um, I remember meeting with him and sitting with him for lunch and saying, and he said to me, and he was one of these stereotypical uh, uh, right out of central casting uh, colonels saying, "I'm Joe, I'm going back. I'm going back to meet with France. And one of the things that I haven't mentioned yet is that we can't control what our defectors want to do. If they want to go, if they want to leave the program, they can leave. If they want to go back, we can dissuade them. We can strongly, strongly suggest that they don't, but it really up to them. Zaporowski decided to go back and meet with friends because he was told he would, you know, he would be safe and that he could pull this off. Well, I remember having lunch with him and saying to him at one point, uh, Alex, you can't go back because if you do, I'll never see you again. We've got a few other, uh, you know, very senior agency people uh, to suggest the same thing. Well, he decided to go back. And when he when he when he when he landed in Moscow, he was arrested by the FSB and sentenced to 18 years of hard labor. Interesting, interesting story about him. And this is why this has become public. It's because this was, he was arrested in 2000, in the year 2000, sentenced to 18 years of hard labor, like I said. And this is where the agency doesn't forget about its key assets and its crown jewels. He was also part of the 2010 spy swap, where we had Anna Chapman and those people, the illegals that we discovered in 2010, uh, and we traded them for four of our uh, four assets that were in prison or in uh, in, in hard labor uh, in Russia. One of whom was Zaporowski. We brought Zaporowski back. Uh, the other famous one within that, we gave them ten. We got back four, one of whom was Sergei Skripal, uh, the defector who was uh, in, uh, poisoned uh, in Salisbury uh, with his daughter um, uh, uh, in, in, in uh, March of 2018. Anyway, Zaporowski came back. We got him back. We don't forget our people. Uh, we got him back, but by, by the time he returned, his wife had passed away. Uh, his 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 existence. He was a he was uh, kind of a shadow of his own self. Um, but um, you know, another example of 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 the fact that two things that people these defectors have minds of their own, and the fact that we we still, despite what happened, uh, tried to take or, or did take care of. Now, in terms of whether we have unhappy defectors, it happens. Uh, and, you know, we try our best. But like I said, the euphoria tends to subside the longer uh, a defector uh, is here in the United States. And there have been cases where defectors have gone to their Congress, uh, uh, congressmen, uh, complained about CIA treatment. Uh, most of the time, 
Um, we like to pride ourselves on making sure that we do things uh, equitably and fairly. But there are times when I, when I, as the director, wound up in front of a senator, uh, letting him hear our side of the story. Uh, you know, and, and, and one of the most famous cases that I'd like to just briefly mention uh, was is a case of a defector uh, who uh, came to the United States in 19, early 90s. We provided very well for, for, for his family, but he lost his job and, uh, and, and frankly did some things that we, with money and, and, and a lifestyle that we didn't, uh, uh, we didn't condone. Anyway, he complained uh, about the fact that he lost his position and um, challenged a, a very, uh, an interesting court case that goes back to 1876. He challenged court case. Let me, let me very briefly, because this is, I think this is interesting. In 1876, or, or during the Civil War, during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, hired a man named William Lloyd uh, to spy uh, against the Confederacy for the Union. William Lloyd died, and it, the, the executor of his estate, a man named Enoch Totten, tried to sue the U.S. government uh, for reneging on payments uh, that were due his client, William Lloyd, to the tune of about $10,000. Well, the Supreme Court in 1876 decided that you could not sue the government over a, uh, an agreement that was reached in secret with the U.S. government. In other words, you can't, sell, you can't sue the government if you enter into a secret agreement with the U.S. government. Well, getting back, fast forwarding now to 2002, uh, this disgruntled defector challenged the Cotton Agreement in a, in a case known as Jane, uh, uh, John and Jane Doe versus Tenet. This particular case went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court withheld the 1876 Cotton Doctrine. So you get challenges. Right. We do get challenges and we try to appease and we try to help and we try to counsel these people. But again, uh, you know, no, nobody defects because they're happy in their own country. We bring them here. We try to make them happy. And it doesn't always work, but we'll never give up on them. And that's key. Joe, shifting gears uh, just slightly. What are the qualities that uh, make for a successful um, uh, resettlement case officer? Good question. You know, we, 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 I, to be a good resettlement case officer, we call them RCOs, resettlement case officers, takes a great deal of, 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 of understanding, of patience. You know, um, when you're in the field and you're recruiting assets, you, you yourself have a sense of adrenaline flowing as you try to spot, assess, develop and recruit someone. Um, and, you know, we, we do that actively and, 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 and we do that uh, uh, professionally and, and with, with great results. When these people are here, it takes a different kind of approach to these assets. We understand how valuable they were, how important they were, the kind of information they provided. 
is important. Uh, and now, and now we have to uh, we have to assert a different kind of attitude in 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 helping these people. I always used to say you have to be a good case officer because you have to understand uh, what they went through. They're, they were case officers in some degree. In many cases, you have to understand uh, uh, what it what it means to be a case officer. But it's more than that as a resettlement case officer. You have to be a psychologist. You have to be a social worker. You have to be a friend. Uh, and, we, you know, as I said, we, we take these cases on for life. So we're constantly, uh, you know, uh, you know, talking to them about their life, their goals, their ambitions, their family life. And so it's, it takes a broad, uh, uh, you know, uh, personality uh, with kind of a soft shoulder in many ways uh, to be a good resettlement case officer. That said, you have to be tough as well. Uh, you have to tell them what they need to do. Um, you know, CIA, once we take them in and we're doing what we can, uh, is not the panacea for them. It's not the, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it's not someone who's going to take care of all of their problems. So you do your best uh, uh, to help them develop an independent life uh, and a life that is worthwhile uh, for the rest of their lives. Joe, you know, we've uh, particularly recently um, seen and heard a lot about um, attacks on uh, defectors, particularly Russian defectors in Europe. been some spectacular cases where they've been attacked primarily, I think, by the Russians. Um, some seriously injured, um, others killed. Have we been successful in protecting our defectors here in the United States? Yes, good. that's a very good question. Actually, uh, you know that uh, part of our part of uh, a huge part of our charter when we take in resettlement cases is to make sure, as I said, that not only live good lives, but they lead they lead self lives, uh, uh, safe lives. And what we've seen over the last couple of years, uh, and it primarily relates, as you said, uh, to the Russians, is that. Somebody like Vladimir Putin is very revengeful. We saw Alexander Litvinenko, uh, a former KGB and critic of Putin, uh, who was poisoned while drinking tea in London in 2000, uh, when was that, 2008, uh, drinking tea, uh, 2006, drinking tea spiced, uh, you know, uh, laced with uh, polonium 201. He died in March of 2018. Uh, we've seen, um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Sergei Skripal and, and his daughter uh, in Salisbury uh, poisoned with uh, a, a Russian nerve agent, Novichok. Uh, Putin and others, Putin, in, in this case, Putin specifically, is not only revengeful, uh, but he has a great deal of disdain uh, for anyone uh, who, uh, in, any any traitor, as, as he would call them, and it's not it's not uh, it's not unlike him, or it's almost to be expected that at some particular point in time he may, in fact, uh, put them on some kind of of target list. Now, in the United States, uh, as far as I know, uh, we've been 
either fortunate or, or diligent and vigilant enough uh, not to have that happen on our soil. Have there been close calls? I recall a few close calls. We once found a, uh, um, a explosive device uh, under a car uh, of one of our defectors that didn't explode. And, and we're not absolutely sure uh, whether it was just a sign or whether it was just a faulty explosive de uh, device. Uh, and, and we haven't seen what, 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 what Europe has seen in terms of, 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 of the, you know, the vengeful uh, 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 activity uh, against some of these Russian defectors. A few years ago, uh, we, the FBI did discover uh, that two Russian agents had come to the United States with legal visas uh, and were uh, uh, found on the street of a Russian uh, defector. And another Russian, actually GRU agent, on another street of, uh, of, of this of the family of this Russian defector. And so, you know, I think we've had some close calls uh, and it's important that we never give up the vigilance that's necessary to make sure these people live good lives. Uh, in June of 2017, you may remember uh, that uh, uh, we had a defector uh, whose name is Oleg uh, Smolenkov, uh, who was outed uh, by a news outlet as being a uh, Russian agent, defector, living in true name, uh, someplace in suburban uh, Virginia. I've seen that. You've read that. The, the world has read about him. He was resettled in true name. And since that, uh, you know, he's been resettled, moved, and probably have a new name, although I'm unfamiliar with, with the details of, of that particular case. But, you know, most of these people, and you can look at people like, uh, you know, Oleg, uh, 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 you, you, you can look at people like Oleg Gordievsky, who was recruited by MI6. And by the way, our defector program is, is not the only one in the world, right? I mean, you know, the, the Brits have their own defector repro, uh, resettlement program. So do the Israelis. So the, the, do the Australians. And people like Oleg Gordievsky, uh, Sergei Skripal, our defectors in this country, while they live decent lives, there's always something in the back of their minds, always something that they're thinking about and that we're thinking about that may cause them to have concern about their own safety and security. And again, specifically to answer your question, we have, had, we have not had the kind of activity, the revengeful kind of activity, as far as I know, of, 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 of hostile uh, uh, intel services or governments looking at our defectors. So we've been, we've been good and, and maybe we've been lucky but we haven't seen the same kind of activity we've seen in other parts of the world. Joe, implicit in your response um, is the fact that there um, must be a close cooperation with the Bureau in this area, as there is in so many others. 
I have to assume that the Bureau has um, some level of knowledge about these defectors and their identities and locations so that they can help protect them as well. Sure. Yes. And, and, and this is very this is very important. I mean, you know, and, and one of the things I didn't mention is that the defector resettlement program that is that is housed in CIA and run by CIA is really a community uh, resettlement service, if you will. Um, that means that in my tenure, and I'm sure since my tenure, uh, we've helped resettle, uh, uh, you, you know, agents, and we've 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 helped resettle uh, assets that for the bureau. Uh, we've done it for a few other agencies as well, because we we like to think that we house the. Uh, the the uh, uh, the area specific expertise that allows us to do it, uh, uh, in, you know, in in a, in a very good, equitable, but in a cooperative way uh, with the FBI uh, and other other uh, U.S. agencies as necessary and or appropriate. Now, you know, uh, we talk a great deal with the FBI about. Um, certain cases, um, but it's really our responsibility, and 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 we've uh, we we've enjoyed a, a a very good and information sharing relationship uh, with the FBI, and in fact, we've done the same overseas. Some of our overseas allies uh, uh, who uh, also have similar programs to ours. Well, once again, a fascinating story. And very well told. I want to thank Joe Augustine, all of the officers who served with him in the Defector Resettlement Program, um, for doing such a great job and for bringing this uh, amazing story to our viewers. Joe, thanks very much. It was great having you on the program again. Thank you, Jim. Um, my pleasure.